Welcome to the broadcast of the Idea Attic, Zach Herbert Idea Attic podcast. And I uh, just appreciate you guys stopping by. Give me a like up on the Facebook. Um, tell a friend about the podcast. That would really help. Um, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's what everyone in the podcasting game says that you have to do is have lots of reviews on Apple. Um, I don't use Apple products. I don't believe in Apple products, but that's fine. That's not what this podcast is about. Um, so lately here in beautiful Nebraska, it's been unbelievably miserable. Uh, the weather has been awful. It's been like 95 degrees with like a 90% humidity and, uh, it's just completely unbearable. Uh, this, this is like kind of a weird story, but I, I was going downstairs to do laundry and our, our laundry room is in the basement, obviously. Uh, and the dryer like goes out of the ceiling and vents out of the side of the house, like pretty standard. So I was like doing laundry and the, the, the dryer was door was closed. There wasn't any laundry in there, but the inside, this is how humid it's been out. The inside of the dryer, uh, the glass window was all fogged over and there was like water sitting in the bottom of the dryer because what happened is we dried wet clothes uh, condensation collected on the line and then like it, there was so much condensation that it all like dripped back out. I've never seen anything like that. Very strange. So you can probably tell I've gone back to notes, which is good. I tried to do a little free form last time. I went back and listened to it and I was saying like so much that it was making me sick and I had to turn off my own podcast. So uh, that's not good. So anyway, I went back to some notes, give it a little bit more structure, also keep things going and make sure I don't ramble on for an hour and a half. So this last week, or actually it was about two weeks ago, we got a new app on our TV called Pluto TV. If you've never checked out Pluto TV, I highly recommend it. It's really cool. It's basically like every channel, well, not every channel, but a lot of the channels is just like a channel of like one show. So there's a channel of like um, the hills, like a bunch. There's basically like a bunch of channels that are all like MTV shows. So there's like a channel of MTV Cribs, a channel of the hills, channel of Laguna, whatever. But they have those. They have a. Uh, they also have like a bunch of like movie channels and like a bunch of like on-demand movies that are free. And the whole app's free, so it's really good. I've been really watching a lot of uh, movies on there. Very strange, very strange movies. They have a, a channel that's all cult classics. So I've been really getting into that. Last night I watched Neon Maniacs. I don't know if you've ever heard of Neon Maniacs, but give it a listen. It's not too bad. Um, so today I kind of took the day off. Um, my son had like a... Uh, my son had like a doctor's appointment, like a checkup. So we went and did that. And then my wife has wanted to go to this place called uh, Ernie's, which is a furniture place in a small town called Ceresco, Nebraska, which is literally just like uh, you when you're driving through Ceresco on the highway, if you blink, you miss it. That's how small the town is. So I went and checked that out. But on the way there, you drive through like another town. Um, it's like one of my like favorite towns in Nebraska. It's just like I always like thought it was like really neat. It's like the perfect size small town. It's 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 like a clean town. There's like there's a lot of like industry there, so like it's not like just a bunch of poor people like trying to escape the city uh, to like make ends meet. 
And it's like literally right in between Omaha and Lincoln. So like if you want to go to like a Nebraska game or you need to go to Lincoln for something, or if you want to go to Omaha for something, it's literally, I think like 30 miles to Omaha and 30 miles to Lincoln. So it's literally right in the middle. And I've always liked this town because it, like I said, it's clean. I, I did some work there like on and off, like, and like 10 years ago when I had my property preservation uh, business, sometimes I would go there and like, I always liked it. The people were friendly. The town was nice. And I've been looking for a place to like, I know like a couple episodes ago, I was talking about like this house that's for sale. That's basically like a mansion, which I really liked. But like I said, it's like 395 grand, which isn't like a ton of money, but it probably like needs 50 grand. So in the last week or so, we've been like, why don't we just build a house? Because I have a license, I can build a house. So we've been like kind of talking about doing that. And in this town in between Omaha and Lincoln, you can buy a three point, uh, a 3.3 acre lot right outside this little town for 50 grand, which is like really good. And these lots are kind of like little acreages, like in a little acreage neighborhood. So there's not like crazy HOAs, you know, cause I've been like looking at like regular lots and like regular subdivisions. First of all, they're all expensive. Second of all, the taxes are like insane. And then also I have to like build something. I have to fit whatever I want to build in this stupid, like little tiny lot. And it's just like really not appealing to me. I'd rather have somewhere where I can't like, I don't want to be like crammed in somewhere like on top of somebody. And if I want to build something, I want to build it like specifically to like what I want. So I want like a house and like a detached shop. And I want to be able to like, you know, park what I want on my property and stuff. I don't want to have to deal with like a bunch of bitches in the HOA and stuff. So I was just really thinking of that today. And it's like the town has like gotten a lot nicer since I've even been there. It's expanded. There is some like new construction there, which is nice. And it's just like the perfect size town. And it, the town looks like something kind of like out of the Saturday evening post. Like you remember those old um, like magazine covers that are like drawn really like a lot of Americana. And like, I'm very patriotic. I love America. I have America coming out of every pore of my face. So I want to be in a setting like that. I don't want to be in some like freako weird city, which Omaha is sort of turning into that. It's making me sick. And this town is like a nice main street area, brick roads, and it has a town swimming pool, which reminds me of kind of like the Sandlot. Well, actually, it reminds me of when I was a kid growing up in Atlantic, Iowa. There was like a city pool where everyone went in the summer. And that's like really cool because you get to know your neighbors. There's a sense of community. There's no sense of community like in the city. And like in Omaha, it isn't that big, but there's still no sense of community. People still feel like, you know, they can act like assholes because it's a, they're in the city. So that's just kind of like my rant a little bit. And this is like one of those small towns where people actually have money and it's nice. It's not like one of these small towns that's dying. So this town has like a hospital and like everything you would want. So anyway, that's kind of my rant about that. I just, I've always like kind of like had a fantasy about like building like my dream house in like a little town. And that, seeing that town today, it was like, God, that would just be like, it would be like, that would be like the perfect area. So another thing um, that I want to talk about is 
uh, I use Facebook like a lot and I use it mostly for like running ads. And when I'm running ads, like I'm always like constantly checking on my ads all day to see like how much engagement they're getting, to see if I'm getting my money's worth, to see if my ads are converting. So I'm on Facebook a lot. And I got to say, like, I'm getting real tired of Facebook. And one of the reasons I'm getting so irritated with it is because like, I don't like, it just boggles the mind. Like you're typing stuff out that like everyone that you're friends with, I guess, theoretically is going to see and people you don't know the very least you could do is check your fucking spelling i don't understand no one can spell they misuse words like there there and there or like they misuse contractions like it's and it is the least you could do is check your spelling and check your grammar you sound like a moron people sound like fucking idiots and they don't even care i mean it's just on and on it's like when you're reading it, it looks like you're reading somebody from like Africa typing out like pigeon English. It's just disgusting. It's like, it just makes me feel like the entire like general population is dumbed down. But I always keep like reminding myself, it's like for every one person you see like commenting or saying something on Facebook, there's like a hundred people that never, ever post. I post like on my personal page, like very rarely. And it's not like, I'm not like pouring my heart out like some of these like idiots and I'm not like giving a bunch of like social commentary because like nobody like cares like on Facebook, you know, if you come and like make the effort to listen to my podcast, then it's like, you probably already know me or you like know what I'm about within the first like couple minutes or at least the first episode. And then if you don't want to listen, turn it off. But on Facebook, it's like unsolicited. I know like all of your opinions on everything, you know, if you're putting that out there. And I don't care to know your opinion because I don't care about your opinion. So that's kind of been getting to me. And that kind of like goes with like this whole COVID thing. And the COVID thing is getting real tiring and it needs to be done because it's just wearing me out. The disease has what? A 99.7% like 99.7% of the people who get it like fully recover. Those are pretty like good odds. I like my chances. And people are going on and on about like, oh, like there's so many new cases. Yeah, because they're continually testing people. And if you have any coronavirus, which isn't necessarily COVID-19, you can test positive for it if you have the, I think, like fragmentation of that, like in your sinuses, depending on what kind of tests they do. So obviously the more people they test, the more people are going to test positive, but that doesn't mean more people are getting sick and more people aren't dying. The deaths have like stable, stabilized. So we need to chill out about it. Oh, and by the way, I heard in the news that there's now a new H1N1. So there's a new flu virus that everyone's freaking out about. Apparently it's in pigs. It hasn't made the jump to human beings yet, but that's something else that we all need to be like really, really worried about is a new flu. Um, it's just wearing me out. It's so ridiculous. People need to understand that like life is about taking chances. Like you might get the flu, you might get COVID, you might get COVID, you might get cancer, you might get this, you might get that. You might get in a car accident on the way to work and die. You might step off a curb and get hit by a car and die. You might get attacked by a dog or something and have it get infected and die. Life is all about chances. And you take a chance when you get out of bed every morning. And 
I feel like the fear and the pampering and the freaking out about COVID-19 is just like a small, I guess like microcosm of like everyone, it's kind of like a window into like everyone's psyche about like taking chances and like being scared about everything in life. And like, you have to be a little bit brave in life, you know, fortune favors the brave. If you ever want to accomplish anything in life, you're going to have to like take chances. You're going to have to like put yourself out there and sometimes bad things happen, but sometimes they don't happen. Like, you know, my grandfather, my dad's dad, he smoked every day since he was like 11 years old. And you know what? And he didn't drink, but you know what? He died of cirrhosis of the liver and it wasn't because of really even like his lifestyle is because he, when he was old, um, he became a diabetic. Well, if you live long enough, you're going to become a diabetic basically. So he got diabetes in his like upper seventies, early eighties. And that like wore his liver out and he died of cirrhosis of the liver. So he took all these chances and guess what? All the chances he took didn't kill him. Something else killed him that was completely not even related to that. So I think that people just need to realize that there's a certain amount of risk in being alive. The only time that you don't have to worry about being dead is when you're dead. So if you ever want to accomplish anything in life, you have to take a chance. And I feel like in our society, we're coddling people so much and people are so scared of something bad happening to them or failing that we're like coddling our kids and we've been coddling our kids. This basically ha started really happening when I was, I guess, like in my 20s. That's when they really started to do things like baseball games and soccer games and like competitive sports where everyone won. Well, how can you be competitive if everyone wins, if it's the same outcome for everyone? It's completely ridiculous. And all the safety and all this stuff, we're just like raising kids that are total pussies and it's disgusting. And I want to show you the story about this. And this is in New York City. I know a guy, he used to own a marketing company in New York City. And before that, um, he was like, I don't want to like say too much about him because um, he's like, I guess to some people, he's like pretty well known. But his first career, um, he, him and some friends like started a company and he ended up selling it and making a lot of money. And then he opened this marketing company. And I, I guess like in New York City, obviously like in New York City, it's different than like in Nebraska, you know, in Nebraska, you have more, there's like less of like coddling your kids, I feel like than on the coasts. And, and so this guy had a marketing company and he would like have these job interviews of these like millennials that wanted um, a spot at his marketing company. So we'd have these job interviews and these kids, and when I say kids, I'm really talking about adults. So these kids would be 24, 25, 26. You'd have a job interview and they would bring their fucking parents to their job interview. I have never heard of it. And it wasn't like a once or twice thing. He said it happened like pretty frequently. The parents would like come in with the kid during the job interview. That's unbelievable. That's the most ridiculous thing I've like ever heard. And then one time he like didn't hire this kid and the kid's dad, who was at the job interview, like called him and was like, why don't you hire my kid? Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. It's like everyone's scared to fail. Failing is the best thing that you can do. It's the best thing that you can do for you. And when I'm talking about like failing now, um, 
I'm talking about like failing in a career or like failing in a relationship or just like failing in general. And that's the best thing you can do. And in this country, like if you fail, nothing happens to you. Like if you fail in business, you're not going to starve to death. You're not going to become homeless because you failed at a business. There's so many like social nets in this country. We don't just, I mean, I guess like when I was younger, like you don't like kind of be scared. Like when you were like, when I say younger, I mean like 19 and 20 or 21, like when you were a child, basically. Like there was obviously like some fear there. It's like, I need to get a good job so I don't like become homeless. And I guess like that in the back of your mind, you're like, well, if I don't do things the the right way, like bad things are going to happen. And it's not like in a lot of ways, it's like not even realistic for me. If like, if I lost everything, I would just have it back in a couple months. You know what I mean? Like they, ha- they ask Henry Ford, if you lost everything today, what would you do? And he said, in a, in a one year time from losing everything, I would have everything back that I had plus more. And by the way, I don't know who the, I don't know who asked him that because Henry Ford did lose everything three separate times before he started the Ford Motor Company. It was successful. So he knew what he was talking about. But one time me and my friends were all like sitting around talking about like, well, if I was homeless, like, here's what I would do. And like, all of us have these great ideas. Like some of my friends are in the medical field and they're like, if I felt like I was going to like freeze to death during the night, I would go into an ER and complain that I had like chest pains because they didn't have to let me in. And it's like, if you like put that much thought into just like a thought exercise, sitting around the table, drinking beers with your friends, you're never going to go homeless. Like you don't fail in business and become homeless. People who are homeless have much more serious problems you know, than like failing at a startup or something like that, or like quitting their full-time job to like pursue like something else, like a, like their own thing. I mean, that doesn't happen. It's not realistic. And the other thing when it comes to failure is a lot of people see people that fail. And like, this happened a lot, I feel like in like 2008, 2009. So I had my trash out business. I would like go and like change the locks on people's houses after they left and like clean them out. And the neighbors would always come over and like they would like talk so much shit about the person who like lost their house. And I always thought it was really disgusting because it was like, you don't even like know the situation. Like you're passing judgment on something you don't know anything about, blah, blah, blah. And also what a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of these neighbors like didn't know. It's like a lot of these people were just like, um, I'm just going to like walk away because my house is no longer a good investment. I've only lived here two years. I'm upside down. I'm just going to like walk away from the property. Which at the time, you know, people people were like, oh, that's like so bad. Like if you have a uh, foreclosure on your like credit, I'm, it's not really that big of a deal. You can get a house like within three to five or five to seven years after like having a foreclosure. And like a lot of times, you know, sometimes I would like uh, be at these like luxury houses where the people were upside down they might've had more than one house. So the idiot neighbor who's like talking shit about these people, it's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're the idiot. You're the one making the payments on something that's upside down. The people who walked away from the house, that isn't necessarily a bad idea to do. And the other thing is, um, you know, people are like so afraid of like going through bankruptcy or starting a business that goes bankrupt. And I've known several people that have gone bankrupt it's, they were back on their feet. 
they were back on their feet within like six months or like a year. And some people just do it literally if they have a business and the business goes bankrupt, a lot of times people will just do that to take advantage of uh, bankruptcy laws to reorganize debt. So those are some examples of like people failing. It doesn't really sound like that big of a deal because it's not, you know, so I, I just think that people should like really get over like the fear of failure. It's disgusting. It's hurting society. It's hurting this country. And if you have those fears where you are so scared that you're living in fear all the time, you're not living your life to the fullest. You know, the more you like stretch yourself and put yourself out there and just the inherent not being overly scared. But like for me, I don't do things that are like recklessly stupid to put myself in a bad situation or put my family in a bad situation. But when you're thinking about like, oh, there's some risk into what I'm doing, that consciously and subconsciously helps you and pushes you to like learn and to like do the best you can do. If you're at some like Fortune 500 job where you're doing nothing all day, you're not ever pushing yourself. You're not ever like bettering yourself because you don't have any like fear of failure because you're not doing anything anyway, if that makes sense. So... That's my rant. Um, this whole, it's basically like a culture of fear. It's just, it's just really disgusting. me. I'm just really worn out with it. I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of like all this crap. Um, I, I could just go on about it forever because right now it's just, it's reared its ugly head in, in society, people being so scared of everything. And, and they're, these people that are scared, they're not educated on what they're scared of. And if they took some time to sit down and educate themselves about it, they wouldn't be scared. So it's just stupid. It's lazy. It's totally disgusting. So <clears throat> switching gears, going to get a little bit more pause, a little bit more positive. Um, you know, I want to go back to notes so I don't say like every other word, which is disgusting. Um, but I kind of... Uh, I wanted to like switch it up a little bit. So I kind of wrote down some, I guess like career paths or some like kind of cool things that I've heard about in the last like 10 years. And these, I guess I would call like either career paths or gigs, or I guess a couple of them are, well, let's, I'll just get into it. So uh, a long time ago, right when I actually, when I was still in college, I became a financial advisor and I talked about it on the very first episode, which is just, it's a fantastic episode. It's award-winning. You can go back and um, listen to that. But one thing that we did as a financial advisor is you would like go meet these prospects and talk to them about their job and about the, like what they're doing for retirement and blah, blah, blah. So you ended up like meeting a lot of cool people or like you would end up hearing about like a lot of people who had like pretty like good jobs. Like, oh, I met this guy. He does this. He's this kind of doctor. He makes this kind of money. Or I met this kind of, this guy. He owns like some car dealerships. He's making this much money because when you're a financial advisor, like you obviously find out how much money they make. So there was like some, some people that had jobs that you learned how much they made and it was like really surprising. So another guy that I worked with, he went and met a guy who, he was a manager at a local grocery store called Hy-Vee and Hy-Vee is a chain like in the Midwest. They're in Nebraska, Iowa, I they're in Missouri. They might be in Illinois. They, uh, I think they're maybe in South Dakota and Minnesota. 
but there's a couple here in Omaha and one of these financial advisors went and he met a manager and the guy managed the, um, the salad bar, which at Hy-Vee, you can also, they have a restaurant in there. Um, that's like kind of like a cafeteria. So you can like do a salad bar, get some other things like pizza, but he, he was the manager of like the salad bar area. And it's a pretty busy high V. It's in like a really, it's in um, a really uh, heavily trafficked area. And this was in like 2008. The guy was making $125,000 a year. And all he was basically doing was making sure the salad bar was fully stocked. And so he was making a really good salary. And then the other thing is high V has, it's like employee owned. So uh, when you work there, once you get to like a certain level, you start getting like a, uh, profit sharing. <clears throat> and I've heard the profit sharing there is like really good. And I've heard that there's like store managers at Hy-Vee that make like uh three or $400,000 a year. And I also heard like if the store like doesn't update and they manage the like construction or they manage it well enough to like hit all their goals and like come in under budget of like the construction that they get massive bonuses too. I don't know if that's true because I didn't like talk to this guy firsthand. I just heard about it through somebody else, but that's the rumor that Hy-Vee pays really good if you get into the right area. So that was kind of cool. Good career path. Maybe you're looking for something different to do. Maybe you're just out of high school or college. Check out Hy-Vee. So here's another one. This is something that not a lot of people are going to be able to do. But when I heard about this, I almost, I almost didn't believe it. But um, I know the kind of money that this individual has. So my mom is a real estate agent. And she has a client that she's helped um, buy and sell like a couple different properties. And this will like blow your mind. He bought a power plant in 1988 in Omaha, in downtown Omaha. And I believe what it is, <clears throat> is so Omaha Public Power District is who like runs the power in Omaha, the electricity and everything. And they have like main plants, <clears throat> but always... Um, they need like auxiliary. So if the power grid like needs more power, like if it's really hot or if it's really cold, which happens in Omaha all the time, then they'll buy power from uh, these third parties. And this happens like all over the place. And so it happens a lot in California because California, they have like rolling blackouts because uh, they don't have enough like power to go around. Number, number one, number two, they have a lot of like undocumented citizens. So they don't know like how much power that they need. And then number three, they have a lot of like restrictive, um, restrictions and laws on like how much power that they can like use. So, um, this is really stupid. So like in California, um, your power bill, your power company will be like out of power. So they'll buy, um, they'll buy all this power from like these third parties. And in California, you can like set up a power plant and it's just like diesel engines because you, because you can charge the power companies out there so much money that it makes sense to have like a, basically like a warehouse full of diesel engines creating power to light up the city. So talk about pollution. That's like incredible amounts of pollution. Like if you have 25 gigantic diesel engines creating power, but this guy bought a power plant in downtown Omaha and I think it was 1988, and I, I believe it's a steam power. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's down, um, uh, if you're familiar with Omaha, it's down, down by the main post office on 13th Street. You can see, like, the chimney and everything. 
And um, I guess he was like in his mid thirties and he like heard about this deal. And I don't, he had some other kind of business or he worked, he was making money before this, but he bought this power plant. He doesn't like know how to run it or anything. He just like pays people to run it for him. But let's just say it's been a real good investment because the guy has five houses. So another cool career path, and this is actually, I guess, more of an investment, but a girl I went to high school with, she owns a building that she leases to Nike for two or three weeks out of the year during the College World Series. So Omaha is home to the College World Series. And I guess, I don't know exactly what year, but five or 10 years ago, um, they moved the College World Series from like kind of South Omaha to north of downtown. And I don't know if this girl inherited this building or she bought it or somehow, but it's basically just like, I've been in at one time and it's kind of like, sort of like a banquet hall, but when the College World Series like isn't in that part of town, it's like not like a super great part of town that people go to all the time. But she just she just leases it out three months out or three weeks out of the year during the College World Series, and I don't think she like leases it out for anything else. So she's getting such good money from Nike that she doesn't even like bother to like lease it out for any other events. So that's interesting. The fourth one, I guess I said three, but we're gonna do four, is a guy here locally in town owns a private dump. So he literally just has a spot in town where you can go like dump your trash, like construction material, anything, roofing material. And it's like right in the middle of town. So tons of people use it, including local trash companies. So like the local trash company that picks the trash up from the front of your house in lots of parts of Omaha, dumps it at this private dump. And the guy doesn't even work there. His kids work there now. He lives in Las Vegas. But I'm gonna we'll get to private dumps later on in the show because we're going to dive into the private dump investment because it's really good. But I want to go into the idea of the week. And so when I started the show, I don't know how many what how many weeks ago it was, but I was like, I have unlimited amounts of like original ideas because at the time I was like very frustrated and I go through this like ebbs and flows. So when I like feel like I need to find a better way or an easier way or a different way to like make money, my brain consciously and subconsciously like churns out all these ideas and they're usually really good, right? So if you like listen to the first five episodes, those are multi-million dollar ideas. But I found I'm doing the flipping, which is always a good idea if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, you want some more information, listen to the last episode, episode 21, go deep into flipping. So I have that. I've always had that. Um, I have a good deal going on right now. But I also have like another like thing I'm doing online that's like starting to like really um, get traction and it's starting to like make me some money. So I'm like really like interested in like pursuing that and like staying with that and like seeing where that goes because potentially that's like I could be making hundreds or maybe even a million dollars a year doing that. And it doesn't, all I have to do is like, it's very good. Like I don't really, I kind of talked about it before, but I don't want to get like too much into it because it's, it's so easy. I don't know why other people aren't doing it. So it's kind of hiding in plain sight and I don't want to like really get into it. But I'm doing that and it's taking up a lot of my mental capacity. So I'm not churning out a lot of great original ideas. 
But that's okay. There's still a lot of other ideas that aren't original that I think we should dive into that might be a good fit for you or it might motivate you to do something else. And I'm going to kind of, this is not an original idea that I'm going to talk about, but not a lot of people know a lot about, well, there's some people see this profession or this idea one way, but it's it's multifaceted. So the idea is selling real estate or being a real estate agent. Don't shut this episode off yet. Like I said, very multifaceted. So I've been selling real estate for five years. I've maybe, um, I've maybe done like 20 actual like deals. And you're like, well, that's like very unimpressive. Well, let me tell you how a regular real estate agent makes money. So a regular real estate agent, this is how they make money when they're brand new. And this is how I think that you should make money brand new as a real estate agent. So what you do is you go out and you find somebody who wants to buy a house. So let's say the person wants to buy a house and the house and their budget is they want to spend right at $200,000 for easy math. So the way that works is they purchase a house for $200,000. You get 2%, the, the, sorry, not you get, the commission for selling that house, let's say, for example, is 2% of $200,000. So that's $4,000. Now, you don't get all of the $4,000. That is the gross commission because you have to split your commission with the real estate broker that you work for. So when you're brand new, you might only get 60% of that. So 60, so 2% of uh, $200,000 is $4,000. If you get 60%, that's $2,400. And so that's your split. Now, out of what you get out of your split, the broker that you work for is going to take additional fees out of that. So they might take fees out of that, like um, your office fee, uh, a technology fee, all, all kinds of different stuff. So maybe if the, the commission that goes to you is $2,400, after, um, after all of the deductions, you might only get $2,000. So that's how like a, a regular agent really makes money, especially at the beginning, because you're going to be working mostly with buyers. Now, I've been doing it for five years. I worked with a lot of buyers. I worked with a lot of sellers. And, and like I said, maybe like 25 or 30 deals. But I flip houses. So when I flip a house, instead of making like $2,000, I make between $25,000 and $180,000, depending on the flip. So... So the volume that I've done is not necessarily reflective of like how much money I have made. So, um, and that kind of gets to like what I want to talk about, um, selling real estate. So kind of what we talked about with the $200,000, that's like going to be your like a regular real estate agent. So in the beginning, like you're going to be trying to do is like as many buy sides and as many sell sides as you can. And the way you do that is you go out and you do marketing activities. So you do open houses. You can walk neighborhoods and knock on doors. Um, I wanted to do that, but then I realized, well, I'm like pretty like intimidating, like build. People aren't going to like come to like open their door to like talk to me. Um so that doesn't really like work. But if you're like outgoing and you're not like intimidating looking, like there was a girl that started at the same time as me and her first year, I think she sold 20 houses because she went and just like knocked on doors and said like, hi, I'm working. 
I'm blah, blah, blah. Um, I saw real estate in your neighborhood. I just wanted to like introduce myself and it worked out like really well. So if you're outgoing, um, that can like work. Um, there's a lots of like different ways. So like a regular, that's how a regular real estate agent like generates business and they want to do as many, you're doing as much volume as you possibly can. And the same is true for if you're a realist. So there's a lots of different like niches within selling real estate or like being a realtor. So that first one, I, that I'm just going to call that's your regular sales agent, or I would call that like a regular resale agent. So you're going to be working with people to help them buy and sell like used houses. The other thing that you could do is you could be a new construction agent. So a new construction agent, there's a couple different ways you can do this. So there's big national brothers, or excuse me, there's big national builders that build in large markets all over the country. So if you're like listening to this, you live in like Tampa or Dallas or uh, Phoenix, Arizona, there's going to be like, I think like Toll Brothers is one of them, like big um, new construction builders that build all over the country. And what you can do there is like, you can like sign up um, to be an agent for them. And you're just going to be selling their houses when they're new. So the builder will be building out a new neighborhood. People will come and like want to buy those. You'll sell those to those buyers. So that's like pretty straightforward, but you can make a lot of money being a new construction agent like that, like a new construction buyer's agent. So there's people at Toll, I think it's called Toll, Bro Toll Brothers, I'm pretty sure. Um, I know there's people there that make like five or $600,000 a year. Now here in Nebraska, there's only one volume builder and some people work for them and they make a couple hundred grand a year. But really here, what you want to do is you want to like be the builder's rep for a builder. That's how you're going to like sell the most homes, make the most money. So that's kind of the um, new construction. Now, selling new construction, you're not going to get, let's say in your market, the typical commission for selling houses is 6%. If you are a new construction agent, you're not going to get a high as high of a commission as you are being like a regular sales agent because a new construction, you're always the builder and you, the builder and the builders reps or the salespeople are always kind of like in a little bit of a struggle, a little bit of a dance because the builder doesn't want to pay you any more than they have to, but they want to have their stuff sold. So generally you're going to get like a little bit less um, for selling a new construction than, than you would a regular house. But New construction homes, when the market is good, are a lot easier to sell. You're going to be like literally taking orders in a good market. So those are like basically the two. Those are, and also like if, if you're a builder's rep, and you're you're representing a builder maybe that sells like or that builds like ten to I would say like thirty houses a year, you're going to have time to like do the more of the like regular real estate too. So it's going to be like a mixture. If you work for a gigantic builder like Toll Brothers or here it's a celebrity, um, you're not going to be able to, you're going to be like a captive agent. So you're not going to be able to sell anything outside of what that builder builds. Now, another thing that used to be very popular was being a REO agent. <clears throat> An REO agent is somebody who lists and sells um, foreclosed houses for banks. And like during the time there was lots of foreclosures, you can make a lot of money doing that. And if you have the right contract with the right sellers, 
you can still make a lot of money doing that. So like if you sell houses for HUD, which is the Department of um, Housing and Urban Development, um, if you can become a listing agent for them in your area or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or the VA, all of those pay their listing agent 7% commission. So if you sell one of those on a typical split, you're going to be making 3.6% of the total value of the house you sell. So let's go back to our example of $200,000. Now, if you sell a house and let's say you have the buy side and the sell side, well, no, let's just say you have the sell side. I'm sorry. Let's just say you have the buy side. So our example before is you made it $2,400 selling a $200,000 house. Well, let's say you sell a foreclosure that is listed by um, one of those large um, companies or government entity, and you get paid out. You'll get paid out instead of at 2%, you're going to get paid out at 2.8%. So let's take a look at what that is. <clears throat> So getting paid out at, at that is $5,600. So if you're on a 60% split, instead of getting $2,400, you're gonna get $3,300. So that pays out quite a bit more. Now, if there's a lot of foreclosures in your area, it could be a catch 22 because like if you lived like, let's say somewhere like Houston and the oil, and there was a big recession in Houston because of like oil or something like that, and there's no jobs, you might get a lot of listings, but you're not gonna be able to sell them. But if it was something like 2000. 8, 2009, where it was kind of a hiccup. People still had money. They had access to money. People were doing investments. If you're getting a lot of those listings, they might be flying off the shelf. And the other thing is, if you're an agent that does that, you don't really have to like deal with any like the negotiating part of being a realtor because um, a third party company like handles all of the buying and selling through like an online portal. So all you're doing is helping people like fill out the paperwork. They're just gonna call you and be like, hey, how do I fill out the paperwork to make an offer? You'll help them do that. They send the paperwork in and they either get like, hey, your offer's accepted or rejected. It's very easy. Another thing that people get into if you're selling real estate is becoming a commercial agent. So a commercial real estate agent, you're gonna be doing uh, sales of commercial buildings, commercial land. You're also gonna be doing like a lots of leasing. And uh, commercial deals can be like very large. So you might be doing leasing for like an entire strip mall. You might be doing um, land sale for a new development. And the checks can oftentimes be bigger. I know a guy that used to do it. His biggest commission he ever got on a deal was uh, I think $160,000. But it took like two years for the deal to close because it was, you know, it's a long drawn out ordeal. It's not as easy as selling a house. Another thing that you could do if you're an agent is you could get into like doing investments. So helping investors like find investments, helping them buy investments, helping them like get funding for an, for an investment property. Um, and that also can get like close to being a commercial agent because if you're doing investing, people might want to buy like a small apartment building or, or a big apartment building or like a, a five unit and that's closer to commercial because like you can't really use, you can't use, I shouldn't say can't really, you can't use a regular residential loan on a uh, property that is like a, over a fourplex. So if you have a, if you're going to be buying a 
an apartment building that has five units in it, you can no longer use like a conventional loan. It would have to be a commercial loan. So being a, an agent that works with investors can be good. It can be like, not bad, but like you, if you're working with investors, they have to be real investors. They can't just be people who want to go out and like look at houses and think about it. But if you have good investors, let's say you're sending out postcards for like, we buy houses for cash or like we buy houses fast or we buy ugly houses. If you have like a corral of investors who are actively buying, they're going to like, basically you're going to be able to find if somebody wants to like sell their house and like they want it sold fast, if you have a corral of investors, one of those investors are going to be like, yeah, I'll definitely buy it. There's people here locally and what they do um, is they have investors um, that go out and they like buy foreclosures at auctions. They, they send out letters for like, we buy houses. And then what they do um, is they try to sell it to their own investors um, after they purchase it. And if those people don't buy it, then they just put it on the MLS and like sell it. And they sell a lot of houses. So those are kind of some like areas um, that you could look in as far as like niches in real estate. The other thing that you could do um, is open a brokerage. And I don't know if you know who Gary Keller is. He owns Keller Williams Real Estate. And you can read, you can listen to like interviews of him and reading his books. And he was like, I like totally sucked as a realtor. I wasn't very good at all. I wasn't number one in my office or anything like that. But he's like, I was really good at like recruiting people to sell real estate. So he was like, instead of trying to sell real estate, I just tried to sell people on becoming a real estate agent and for and selling them on working for me. And I believe that Gary Keller is getting close or has become a billionaire. And he's one of the only people that's become a billionaire from owning a residential real estate brokerage. And basically what you're doing is you're just recruiting people to come like sell under you at your brokerage. So you'd be keeping all the records. You'd be making sure your agents aren't breaking any laws or breaking any rules. Um, you'd be helping them get leads. So, and, but, but mostly you're going to be recruiting. You're going to be trying to get as many agents to, to work for you as possible because you're going to get paid every time that they sell a house, but also like you're going to get paid every month because as a broker, you're going to be like charging your agents to like have their license there, to have a place to like do business, to, for the right to like be able to use the MLS, everything like that. So that's another route you can go. And that can be a really good route for the right person. Obviously, it was really good for Gary Keller. Now, the other one I've sort of talked about in the past, and for the right person, this is like an amazing business you can make lots of money at, and it's property management. Property management, what you're doing is you're just managing properties um, for people who own houses, own, own um, commercial buildings, own rental properties, own uh, own apartment buildings, sorry. And you're just collecting a fee to like collect um, rent for them, take care of any problems that come up with their rental property. Like I said in the past, being a property manager is literally a license to like steal money, but you're going to be dealing with people all the time. So you better like be really good at dealing with people. You better be really organized. You better have like really good bookkeeping skills. Um, it's a detail oriented people business. So that's kind of like my breakdown of real estate, selling real estate, being in the real estate niche. Obviously there's other things like flipping houses, becoming a real estate developer, but we're not really going to get into that. 
So those are some kind of like some areas you can start out with. Obviously, you're not going to start opening a brokerage, but that's still kind of like starting, you know, phase stuff compared to being a developer. So that's my idea of the week. Not super original, but I do think that like if you work at being a real estate agent really hard, you put in the hours, you put in the time, you can make a lot of money. I know I personally know people that sell that have been selling real estate. I know one guy that's been selling real estate for I think 25 or 26 years. He started like right out of high or right out of college. The guy makes over a million dollars a year. I think his gross commission last year was like $1.6 million. That's in Omaha, Nebraska. So Omaha, Nebraska isn't exactly a bastion of luxury real estate. So it's very, it's very doable. But it has to be a good fit for you and you have to get the right niche. That guy has a specific niche that he works and it works out well for him. So shifting gears. Now this is a business for sale. I don't, not sure I actually love this specific business because they don't give you a ton of um, information. Sorry. Um, but what it is, is it's an environmental recycling center for sale. Basically what it is, it's a, is it is a dump for sale. And if you can get your hands, and I've seen them listed before, and usually if they're good, they sell really fast, but they're usually really expensive. And what makes a dump so good is number one, Dumps are usually municipal, so they're usually not for sale. You usually can't get your hands on them. Number two, you could never, I don't, I don't have no idea how you could even start a dump. It'd be very difficult because of like all of the, the red tape would be literally unbelievable. Like you'd have city, city, state, county, federal, EPA, everything that you'd have to like deal with to get it started. And then number two, like once you have it up and running, making money, you still have to deal with all of those regulations. So I have, I don't even know if you could start a brand new dump. I mean, I guess you could because I guess on the South, the South, I don't, not a lot of people know this. New York City has nowhere to put their trash. So New York City used to put their trash on Staten Island, but they, they filled up the dump on Staten Island. And then they also used to like, put their trash on a barge, take it out in the middle of the ocean and then sink the barge. Obviously you can't do that anymore. So now they ship all of the trash from New York city to the South to different dumps in the South. It's not really well known. You can find information on it, but they like try to hide it because they're like, well now like New York city is like so green. We like don't even have a landfill. Well, yeah, you're like shipping your trash to the different part of the country. But this, this dump, it's being marketed as an enviro, environmental recycling center. They're asking $7.9 million for it. Cash flow is 390000 Gross revenue of $1 million. So most of the asking price is obviously real estate. So I'll read you the little teaser. It says, prime location, real estate included. This recycling center produces mulch, soil, gravel from waste materials, Site is well-established and includes prime real estate location of approximately 3.75 acres. Business could be expanded by taking in garbage and other scrap or waste products. Excellent opportunity. Contact listing agent. So not only are they charging people to come dump stuff there, they're turning those products into mulch, soil, and gravel. 
So you can probably like take, I'm guessing, it doesn't say in here, but like concrete there and they'll chip the concrete up and then re sell the concrete as gravel. Um, break stuff down into soil, break stuff down into mulch. So you're getting paid to take it and you're getting, you're selling it. So that's good. Uh, it's in Florida. That's good. Tons of people in Florida. It's not huge and they don't take garbage. So you have to find out um, how you could take garbage. Garbage. You're probably not going to be like piling up garbage on the site. What you're probably going to be doing is like you could like turn it into a transfer station. And a transfer station um, is like you might have like a pit in the ground. And then in the pit is like a semi or two semis uh, with like huge dumpsters on the back. People come and tr dump their trash like on the ground on the ground of a building. You pull in into like a warehouse, basically. You throw your garbage on the ground, and then a front end loader pushes your tra that trash into a pit. It goes in the back of a semi. That semi goes um, to a local landfill. So, so let's say uh, as a consumer, you can dump your stuff there, and they charge you like twenty dollars a ton but they ship their trash to the uh, local landfill where they pay um, like where they pay $5 per ton to dump their trash there. And then they collect the $15 difference, but they're doing it on a huge scale. So if you could turn this thing into also a transfer station, you can make a lot of money because transfer stations make a lot of money because like here in, in Omaha, that dump, like I said, it's in the middle of the town, is also a transfer station. But the next closest dump is like 20 miles out of town. So everyone uses the transfer station. So if you could turn this into a transfer station, you can make a lot of money. The other thing is um, this business uh, only has five employees you have to deal with. Um, they're going to stay on uh, for support. And they're selling it for other business reasons, which I don't like. So that means that there's probably something wrong with this. But if you see like a good dump or a good transfer station and you want a business that's like really straightforward and easy, I would take a look at it. There was one I was really interested in quite a while ago. It was $11 million, but it made $4 million a year. It was outside of St. Louis. It was a huge real dump. And they took all kinds of construction material that a lot of dumps won't take, like demolition material from like demolition, demolishing buildings. So not only was it a dump, which is amazing, it was like a niche dump that could handle things other biz other dumps couldn't handle. <clears throat> so if you want to learn more about this dump, maybe see if this guy has more listings of other dumps in Florida. If you want to relocate to Florida, let's say you live in New York City and you're tired of the bullshit, tired of being locked down, want to go somewhere where you have a little more freedom. I would suggest Florida. I've been to Florida a couple times. I thought I was going to hate it. I actually liked it. You know why? Because it felt like America. I even went to Miami and it felt like America. People had America coming out of every pore of their face and I loved it. Um, it is listed by True Fort Business Group. They can be reached at 239-284-1317. Ask them about dumps, bro. I'm telling you. If I could get my hands on a dump, I would love it. The guy that owns the dump, like I said, in the middle of Omaha, makes a ton of money because they take all kinds of stuff. It's big. They take scrap metal. They take, I think you can bring a car in there and they'll scrap it. You can bring in um, building material. You can bring in roofing, like literally bring anything there. And it's pretty expensive, but it beats driving an hour to the dump and back. So 
he's got a good setup and it's going to be good for years and years to come. And now all of his kids work there. Um, just amazing. So that's something to look into. Um, I think junkyards are good. I think dumps are better than junkyards. Um, because there's always going to be trash. So until next time, those are some things to think about. I'm going to try, I'm just going to be doing this once a week. I think, you know, I want to keep you guys wanting more and, uh, I just love it. Just love it. So tell a friend about the show. Stay tuned for next week and don't let the news get you down because it is depressing. But, uh, Anyway, we'll catch you guys next week. Appreciate it. Share the show with a friend. Do the right thing. Thank you.